And I think there's still something to this day within me that reacts very viscerally to the idea of danger, evil, and death infiltrating the safety of home. It's, I think, why haunted houses mean so much to me. I think it's why I can't seem to get through a ghost story without turning it into a story about trauma. I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times. They're also probing, insightful, and often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror's star creators. The terror begins right after this. Writer-director Mike Flanagan made his name in horror with his early films Oculus and Hush. His 2017 adaptation of Stephen King's novel Gerald's Game brought him fame. Mike cemented his status as a modern master of horror with his miniseries The Haunting of Hill House, quickly followed by The Haunting of Bly Manor and the feature film Dr. Sleep, the sequel to The Shining. Mike spoke to History of Horror showrunner Kurt Sienga about the challenges of adaptations, the joys of long-form storytelling, and how he approached the high-wire act of fusing together the radically different visions of Stephen King and Stanley Kubrick. So, Mike, your work often explores the way that places can absorb and communicate great trauma. Why does that interest you? I talk a lot about traumatic places and about how houses or manors or hotels, uh, how places are haunted, places are the antagonists. I think it's because I actually had a relatively uneventful and safe childhood. I think it's because I always viewed home as safe. And I know that isn't everyone's experience. And I think that's some of the horror of the world. The idea for me growing up that something could infiltrate home was something that was unthinkable. It was such a space of safety to me that I started to base a lot of my identity around where I was spatially in a given day. There was me at home who was completely safe to be himself and to relax and be with family and there was no anxiety there. Then there was school and school had a completely different feeling. The air was different. It smelled different. It spatially felt different, and the pressures of it, the dangers of it, were, were all very different. I think I associated safety and danger with the places that I frequently would find myself in a given day. And I think there's still something to this day within me that reacts very viscerally to the idea of danger, evil, and death infiltrating the safety of home. It's, I think, why haunted houses 
means so much to me. I, I think it's why I can't seem to get through a ghost story without turning it into a story about trauma. I think they are very much the same thing. I believe very much that each of us projects an enormous amount of meaning on the spaces in which we inhabit. We all live in haunted houses. We just aren't afraid of, of most of the ghosts. If we're in the house where we raised our kids, the ghost is we see them little and playing and we, and we see them running through the halls. You know, if, if it's the house that we grew up in, we see our parents when they were younger. We see our siblings. We see hanging out with friends. We have these ghosts that aren't threatening, that we accumulate and we install into all of these places. I've even worked at companies long enough to have done this, where you start to infuse your workspace with these perfectly harmless, nostalgic, pleasant ghosts. We haunt the places we're in automatically. But because we're human beings and because we all deal with trauma and we all deal with fear and we all deal with tragedy and uncertainty, inevitably throughout our lives, we're going to create scary ghosts and we're going to put them where we're the safest. You know, that's where we're going to, we're going to have to confront them. I think that's what makes the haunted house subgenre so enduring that there's just no shortage of hauntings. We, we make too many ghosts and we need a place to put them. And the ghosts aren't going to haunt us at our storage facility. They're not going to haunt us in our car very often, though I think Stephen King's found a few ways to try to make that happen. They're going to get you in your bed where you sleep. That's where the ghosts are. They're going to get you at home. That speaks to something very primal in all of us that strikes at everything we expect to be safe, everything we expect to be non-threatening. It strikes at where we put our children to sleep. It strikes at every perceived safety we can imagine. So yeah, I think I'm way more interested in the way people change their spaces and in the ghosts they create and infuse into them. That to me is full of endless narrative possibility. I don't have difficulty continuing to ruminate on it or to imagine new stories in that world. I have a much harder time with things, and I love them, but things like monsters, like Jaws is one of my favorite movies, but at a certain point you kill the shark and the shark isn't gonna get you at home, it's gonna get you when you're on the water. External monsters in the monster movie world have to abide by a series of very unfortunate rules that can be very effective within those movies and be terrific within those genres. But you're only in danger because of where you are. You're only in danger because you're in the monster's territory or because it's found its way in to a place where it shouldn't be. And it's then the story's about ejecting it from that place it shouldn't be. It's much more interesting to me watching what people create in their own space and how they paint the walls with that blood. I think those stories, they shake me up. I'm more worried about that than I am about the monsters. Well, in Hill House, the ghosts and the traumas aren't confined to the house. They reach out to haunt their victims wherever they are. Yes, that's something else wonderful about a great haunted house. If the horror is linked intrinsically to a character, if it's linked intrinsically to the trauma that they've been through or to a fear that they have, it means that they can carry it with them. It means in the same way that we create our ghosts and populate them into our spaces, it means we do take them with us in other places that they can reach out. I love the idea, and Hill House was a great playground to talk about how you can kind of at once never go home again, but you can also never really leave. As far as we think we get from our childhoods geographically, somewhere at three in the morning when we close our eyes, we're still gonna be right back at home. Dan Torrance is still 
going to be on that big wheel in the halls of the Overlook, you know, no matter how far away he gets. That sense that the past is never finished with us. Its arms are long and it's patient. So it's always going to reach out. It's always going to find us somewhere and pull us home. That's deliciously scary. And that gets you into that wonderful contradiction where people have to go back and confront a place they've never truly been able to leave to begin with. That, to me, is some of the biggest work that we'll all do in our lives. So to be able to use that as an engine for horror, that's what I think the genre is for. I think that's, at its best, it's just showing us something that we're dealing with anyway. Do you come from a big family? I don't come from a terribly big family. I have one brother, parents still together. They come from big families. Each of my parents is the oldest of six. So my extended family is huge. I have aunts and uncles and dozens of cousins, some of whom I've like met one time in my life, if that, who are spread out all over the place. So I had the experience of being part of a very large family, but also being part of a very small one. My immediate family growing up, it was very nuclear. It was very contained. My father was in the military. My mother stayed at home for the most part with us, and it was the four of us. And we moved around a lot because my dad would be stationed in different places all over the country. And so we uprooted quite a bit. You know, we, we weren't in the same place long enough necessarily to grow lasting relationships and friendships. You know, we, we got very used to reinventing ourselves. And so the family was the constant. Outside of that, vicariously, I've been able to see what it is like to be part of a much larger family. And The Haunting of Hill House in particular is based in no small part on things I witnessed with both of, of my parents and their brothers and sisters and their parents and, and the, those large families. I was drawing a lot from what I saw for that. But no, my own family was, was relatively small and very fortified. I'd say you capture sibling dynamics pretty well. I also think sibling dynamics are way more interesting in the horror genre than most other dynamics. Because everything else, you know, romance can get, I think, boring. There's only so far you can get with people who are in love or they're not. Will they or won't they? You get two or three plot points and you're done. And if they're being chased by a ghost or a monster anyway, it's uh, whatever. But the sibling dynamic lets characters be uncensored. And it lets them bring all that baggage that they've grown to the very first scene of the movie or the show. And they're not concerned with each other's feelings. So they get to speak very plainly. And that just makes for much more dynamic character interaction. So I, I really, I'm kind of a sucker for, for the sibling stories. I find them to be the most interesting to play in. And working in that kind of big canvas, like across 10 episodes, do you feel comfortable with that kind of lengthy narrative? I feel very comfortable in television. And it's because I think I grew up reading Stephen King. I was too afraid to watch horror movies for so long in my life that I thought it would be less traumatic to read Stephen King books. And I was so wrong about that. But I really believed it as a kid. The canvas on which he was able to create was so sprawling and so beautifully rendered. And the journeys he could take the characters on I love that for television. And I particularly love a limited series that has a clear beginning and a clear end that isn't trying to kind of artificially keep the story going or leave it open-ended. I really love knowing that I get to make a 10-hour movie. That's my sweet spot. I, I get to spend 
all the time I want to with the characters. I get to really play with the arc. I get to really tease out when we turn those cards over for the audience. I've played around with it a little bit where, you know, Hill House was 10 episodes, Bly was nine episodes, Midnight Mass is seven, The Midnight Club is 10. Like we're, we're kind of vacillating back and forth. I just love long format. And the problem I've had with every movie I've ever made is that I turn in a movie that's substantially longer than people want it to be. And I always cut it down to, you know, where I, I think it's releasable and where it's the most impactful but I always hate making the cuts. I really enjoy being able to stretch out and relax in the story. Television gives you that opportunity in a really profound way. I'm just, for the first time, working on a show that is meant to continue beyond one season. And that's a whole new challenge. A feeling like you've reached the end, but that it hasn't ended. Like, that's, that's a very strange place to be. But I'm, I'm enjoying it. My favorite thing, though, is just, I mean, a limited series is like being able to recreate the feeling of reading a great novel. And that, to me, is how I came into learning about storytelling. That's how I consumed stories, was novels, for most of my life. So it's, it's my favorite place to work. You've done a number of adaptations, some of them faithful, some radically different than the source material. Is it fun to be able to subvert expectations with something like Hill House or The Turn of the Screw? although I don't know how many expectations are being subverted when you're updating a novel by Henry James that probably only a statistically small number of people have ever heard of, much less read. Oh, yeah. And that one in particular. Adaptations are enormously fun. Part of it's that you get to tell a story that you love already. Part of the fun of an adaptation is that that story's been told, presumably, really well already. It got your attention or it, it enjoys the fan base it has because it has been told really, really perfectly. It's really fun to take those same Lego blocks and build something new or build something that kind of looks like the original idea, but takes it in a different direction. And I think that it kind of cuts both ways for me because I, as a Stephen King fan, find myself very protective of Stephen King's work when I watch adaptations. And when people take liberties with, with King, I get, uh, I, get, I get mad as a viewer sometimes. And then other times, I see something and I'll be like, oh my God, that's even better than the book. That's rare. That's hard to do. Um, but as Stephen King will say, the beautiful thing about adaptations is that the book remains completely untouched. Even when the movie comes out, if it's good, bad, or often some unrelated direction, the book remains unchanged on the shelf just where you left it. And at any time you can pick it up and you can have that pure experience every time. And so I've approached adaptations in a number of ways, where with Gerald's Game and with Dr. Sleep, I wanted to be as faithful as I could to the source material, knowing that I had to make some pretty big changes to make it function as a film. I've also approached adaptations, as, as in The Haunting of Bly Manor, with material that has been adapted so many times that I was utterly uninterested at doing a faithful adaptation that there are so many versions of The Turn of the Screw. What was the upside in, in trying to do just another one? Especially when I think Jack Clayton already did it essentially perfectly in, in 61 with The Innocents. And so sometimes 
I am really excited to approach adaptation from the point of view of really remixing something, of, of really doing our own thing with it, taking all the ingredients that are there, seeing what we like, seeing what fits, and trying to make something completely new that hopefully still celebrates the original, but, but offers a new perspective on it. And fans can be very divided about that. You know, I, I know diehard Shirley Jackson fans who had some pretty strong opinions about how we approach The Haunting of Hill House, and I'm sympathetic to that. You know, on the other hand, uh, I think Robert Wise already adapted that source material about as well as somebody's going to. And there was no point in doing it, trying to outdo The Haunting. And, and there was no way to tell that story in 10 hours otherwise. It's a, it's a perfect movie. So yeah, I, I think adaptation for me is this constant tug of war between honoring something and trying to create something new. And finding that balance within a story is part of the beautiful challenge of adaptation. And sometimes you'll go too far in one direction or too far in the other, and you'll never know until it's way too late. It poses a, a remarkable opportunity and a remarkable challenge at the same time. And I have enormous respect for people who endeavor to take a swing at adapting a story that's already been told, even if in another medium. You gotta have thick skin to do that. Whether the adaptation is ultimately successful or not, just the fact that you're taking someone else's story and deciding to tell it this way is admitting an, an amount of responsibility that doesn't exist when you're doing an original, when you're doing your own story, when you've really got nobody to thank or blame but yourself at the end of the day. There, there's a level of serious responsibility that comes with adaptation. And even if you're not approaching it in a straightforward and faithful way, I truly respect. And so even when I see adaptations that didn't quite clear the bar for what I expected the adaptation to be, I still have an enormous amount of respect for those filmmakers because that's a, that's a tough place to stand. Speaking of adaptations, what did you think of Color Out of Space? I thought Color Out of Space was pretty damn cool, I gotta say. Lovecraft is tough to adapt. Cosmic horror exists in the imagination in a way that can be profoundly difficult to translate visually and without making it ridiculous. Um, so much of Lovecraft's horror comes from the horror of existence, comes from entities that we're told are impossible to comprehend even on the page, much less present physically. I thought Color Out of Space took a very commendable approach to the source material with an author who is not easy to adapt. Instead of kind of glimpsing the cosmic horrors or the, the chaotic entities at work here, what you're seeing is the corruption of a familiar family unit that becomes the physical corruption of that unit. It becomes body horror, which is basically taking something as simple and intrinsic to our experience as humans as a mother's embrace of their own child and turning that into something grotesque, something from which neither of them can be extracted. That was an incredibly striking visual. Color Out of Space is a fascinating adaptation in that regard. It's tougher to talk about that movie now. As happens in, in art, it's a challenge to kind of process what you learn about artists and reconcile that with their work. I think Color Out of Space was a lot easier to talk about a year ago. But at the same time, that doesn't take away from what the actors and all the people who worked in that accomplished. No, no, not even a little bit. And the people involved in making The Color Out of Space, the incredible cast, um, the, the producers at Spectre Vision, who I know very well, actually, Daniel Noah and Elijah Wood, 
you know, who really had been wanting for a number of years to adapt Lovecraft and to, and to do something that was at that, on that level of difficulty to do it effectively. I think they, they put together a really beautiful piece of work. It's challenging. It's visually quite beautiful. And the way color is used in that film is really, really gorgeous. So I, I think there's a lot to celebrate in that adaptation. As someone who's wanted for a number of years to adapt various Lovecraft things, that's really hard to imagine approaching. And when we talk about separating art from the artist, H.P. Lovecraft himself is problematic on a number of levels. We now have really been forced to confront, finally. And I think Lovecraft, you know, country did a really good job of shining a spotlight on a lot of the areas where Lovecraft had, had some serious problems. So I, I, think, uh, I think it's really neat to see that people are able to kind of dig into material as challenging as Lovecraft, as intrinsic to the imagination as Lovecraft and come up with something that visceral and cinematic. I think that's, that's really impressive. Do you have any thoughts on Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors? Oh, do I ever. I love Dream Warriors. I vacillate between what my favorite Elm Street movies are. You know, I, I have nothing but profound love for the original. I love New Nightmare. I think New Nightmare is really damn cool. But Dream Warriors is special. It stands out from everything else in the franchise. It has enormous guts. I mean, not only in bringing back Nancy into this brand new kind of parental role, into this mentor role. The slasher genre is not about empowering the kids. It's really about setting them up to be eviscerated in the most satisfying way possible, one at a time until you're, you're down to one or two. This is a movie about empowering them. It's about acknowledging them as outcasts, first of all, about acknowledging them as kids who are insecure about how they function and how they fit into their social groups and into the world in general, but who together find empowerment and confidence in exploring their own individual quirks, their shine, if you will, and letting it kind of shine through, and how that makes them a formidable opponent for the monster, for Freddy. How they find strength in numbers to do this. What a beautiful structure we're the third movie in a slasher franchise. What an ambitious way to approach it. And to give it the kind of stakes that it gives it, that it's not just that you're bringing Nancy back, who you can argue is one of, if not the, defining prototypes for the modern horror heroine. You're not just bringing Nancy back, you're killing her. You're killing her in a deeply emotionally resonant way too. And you're having Nancy kind of show up for that last sacrificial battle with, with her tormentor from the original film that, that we thought she'd escaped. There's a lot to love about Dream Warriors. And we talked about that movie at length in the writer's room for The Midnight Club, which is also about a, a group of teenagers who, for very different reasons, are going to die. And how they come together, how they use their imaginations to try to lift each other up and to try to build this, this bond. Um, I think that movie's ahead of its time in a number of ways. I, I think that collection of characters is some of the most well-drawn, some of the, the most charming and sympathetic that you're going to find in a slasher-based ensemble. And the fact that that is the movie 
that falls into that kind of typically undesirable third slot in a franchise. There's almost no more cynical place to stand than number three. Because number two, you could take a swing. You also, like, you've got, for number two, you've got your aliens. You've got, you've got movies that really up the ante on the original. It's tough with number three because unless you're concluding a trilogy, unless, you know, you're really trying to return to the king this thing, in what is meant to be an ongoing franchise, number three is the first time you're forced to admit this is about the money. Like, that's what this is really all about. And so to take these ideas, which I think are very progressive ideas within the genre, and to drop them into the third slot in, in a franchise New Line wanted to go on forever, I think that's really damn cool. And that I vacillate, like I said, I vacillate with what my favorite Elm Street movie is, but there are days I wake up and it's, it's definitely Dream Warriors. Episode six of The Haunting of Hill House appeared to be one continuous shot. Why did you decide to do that? And what was it like to direct such an incredibly challenging episode? Episode six of The Haunting of Hill House. That was the hardest thing that I've, I've ever done professionally. It, it, it's something so many of us did. It, it was like a, a live theater performance. It's very easy when you're trying to sell a show to say something to an executive like, and then in the middle, we're going to do an episode that looks like it's all one shot. It's really easy to say. And it's, it's a thing that gets people excited. And it got me excited. It was taking an episode and trying to make it immersive, trying to, to really do something that was hypnotic. One of my favorite movies of all time is Hitchcock's Rope. I love that film. I've been wanting to emulate it my whole career. This was the chance to take a really big swing it's rare that a story has a moment in it that feels like it organically should be covered that way. And where we were in the story of, of the Crane family and Nell having just died and sitting with her in the funeral home, it felt like this was one of the rare times where I could say this is appropriate for where we are in the story, the story we're telling. None of us knew what it meant to really do it. We built the set of Hill House for that episode, the hidden passageways. We constructed the funeral home and the foyer of Hill House on two stages next to each other with a hallway that connected them, knowing we were going to be walking from one to the other for this. The whole season was spent preparing for this episode, and my weekends were preparing for this episode. While we were building the set, I was doing walkthroughs with the department heads, choreographing the episode. We shut down for six weeks to rehearse the episode and to rig it, because it was like theater. I mean... Uh, we had lights everywhere over both of the sets that needed to be programmed so that an actor would step in and out of the right light on perfect cues and we wouldn't be casting camera and crew shadows all over the thing. The logistics of that episode was like climbing a mountain. The pressure on the cast and the crew was unimaginable. What becomes very clear early on is that you're not shooting a scene, you're filming a dance. And the dance isn't just the camera and the cast. The dance is 120 people that have to do their job exactly right. So it's not just about turning the camera and making sure you've got McKeel in focus. It's that people had to run in and pull out a row of chairs behind them so the dolly could get by and then replace them silently without distracting and move bounce cards in and out just out of frame. 
the the crew mechanics of it, if you if you could look at it from above, this huge production is happening all around and just out of frame of what you see are dozens of people scrambling to get things in and out of place in the last minute. And if one of them fucked up, the whole thing was toast. And you had to call cut and start over. It's not like you got half of it, so you could, only, you could keep going. You had to start from scratch, which meant that we would be jettisoning everybody's great work over and over and over again, every single time we did it, except one. And it was months trying to get that one. I knew that it was the most ambitious thing that I'd been a part of. I was terrified that we were going to not be able to deliver it because there was no half measure. It wasn't like we could get half of it right and then just fall back to traditional coverage. It was kind of all or nothing. And the way our show had scheduled out and, and gone on hiatus and shut down, if we were to come back and say, no, we, we want to shoot this like a traditional episode. The wasted resources and the money and the confidence of Netflix and Paramount and Amblin would have collapsed. I've never felt more helpless than I did when it was time to shoot. And that was only the, at the end. We rehearsed it so much. I, I had rehearsals with just the cast that was about the scene work. And then we would learn all the choreography with the crew, with the camera operators, the focus pullers, grips, everybody. And we would be rehearsing on, on one set, running through the move, which is like a 250-point turn on a peewee dolly. And then on the other set, second team and the other camera operators would still be refining the lighting cues and all the, the movement of the other scene that we'd rehearsed. And it was this dance that would start, and we had to be right on every time. And we did it for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks until we finally got to the point where it was time to shoot. And then we just had one day for each of those five winners. And um, if we didn't have the shot by the end of the day, we weren't likely going to get it. It was nauseating and terrifying. And it's one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. The satisfaction that all of us shared when we called cut and we knew we had it. And it happened five distinct times. It was like five days in a row that week. We got it. We lived and died a million times before we finally got there. I came out of it feeling very much like it was the right way to tell that story. It's one of my favorite things I've ever gotten to be a part of creatively, and I never, ever want to do it again. By the time this is released, your project Midnight Mass will be out. What is Midnight Mass? Midnight Mass is a limited series. It's an original. It's a, a story I've been trying to tell for a very long time. I started working on it as a novel before I had a career making movies. I found pages from the novel that I was working on while I was still trying to get someone to take an interest in Oculus as a movie. Um, and over the years, I've tried it. I, I tried to attack it as a screenplay, but it was way too long. I tried to take it out as a TV show back in 2014, and everybody passed on it. And Netflix greenlit it right after The Haunting of Hill House. And uh, it's a Midnight Mass. I, I don't want to talk too much about plot-wise, but it's very Stephen King-ish, very much about a community. It's about a tiny island community of fishermen. And into this very isolated community arrives a young, charismatic Catholic priest. And strange things begin to happen around the island, even some miraculous things. Uh, but there's, there's something darker underneath it all. It's probably my favorite story I've gotten to tell, and the one that is the most personal and autobiographical, I think, for me. 
I did something that I never, I said I'd never do again after Hill House. I said I'd never want to direct the entire season of something again. That's just too much. Um, but I did it again for Midnight Mass, and I'm so glad I did it. It was the, the best production experience of my life. Yeah, it's my, it's my favorite. I really hope people like it. Because, man, if they don't, that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of what I'm here to do. So if they don't like that, I better, I better uh, try to come up with another, another line of work. Usually sequels are something no one asks for except studio accountants. Are there exceptions to that rule? I think there are occasionally exceptions to the rule that sequels only seem to come from studio accountants. I think sometimes an author might see an opportunity to continue a story or to continue a character's journey. And I think in the case of Dr. Sleep, Stephen King spent decades after finishing The Shining without really feeling like the story was finished. And the way he tells it, I, I believe a fan had come up to him at a book signing and asked him whatever happened to Danny Torrance. And that really kicked something off with him. Sometimes a sequel can truly represent a creator's intention, you know, to, to further explore a story, to further explore a character. It doesn't always have to come from that cynical monetary place. It doesn't always have to just be a a quest for cash. It's rare, but now and again, a story presents an opportunity for itself to continue and, and sometimes for, for another installment of that story to help shed some light on elements from the original that people might, might have missed or, or to help them evolve a little bit. Well, Doctor Sleep is one of the few sequels, and Psycho 2 also comes to mind, where a significant amount of time has passed between the first film and the second, and the same amount of time has passed for the characters. Does that help to differentiate Doctor Sleep from The Shining? I think that that time gap helps enormously, because one of the challenges of a sequel is that the appetite for a sequel tends to happen very quickly. It tends to happen kind of as soon as the numbers from the original come in. And people say, oh, okay, well, this is hot right now. Let's try, to, let's try to strike while the iron is hot. Let's try to take advantage of that enthusiasm. And there, there's a general feeling in Hollywood that if you wait too long to make a sequel, there won't be any interest. But I think that actually helps because especially for stories that do span decades, that see characters who have changed so much in the interim, it allows an audience to completely reset. It allows a new audience to find the sequel first in some cases um, without having to, to know the original. It lets people approach a franchise backwards if it's done really well. I think that space allows for so much change within the principal characters that you're not just being thrown into something familiar. You're not regurgitating something. Off the bat, just that passage of time puts you in a whole new perspective. And I think that can be really, really useful. What is the plot of Dr. Sleep? Dr. Sleep is about 
Dan Torrance, the little boy from The Shining, now grown up, wrestling with his own demons, his own alcoholism, his own propensity for violence, kind of wandering through the world by himself, doing everything he can to suppress The Shining, to suppress that incredible ability that was so strong with him as a child that it attracted the attention of the Overlook Hotel and destroyed his family. He encounters another child, um, even more gifted than Dan was, who is just radiating with this incredible power and this energy and this ability, but who, unlike Dan, is not in this traumatic kind of abusive family situation. The threat to Abra are actually a group of just, I mean, classic Stephen King antagonists called the True Knot um, that are these quasi-immortal beings who literally feed on the life force of these special children, children with the shining. There are so many characters in Stephen King books who would have been on the dinner plate of the True Knot. They're a kind of perfect King monster because you can imagine them just driving their RVs through so many of his books. But Abra having caught wind of this group and the True Knot having gotten Abra on their radar um, turns to Dan asking for help and trying to stop this group and bring them down, which forces Dan to have to not only confront the truth about his own childhood and what happened to him in the Overlook as a child, but it forces him to choose whether he is going to let that shine of his back out into the world and take on the role of the mentor and protector, much like Dick Halloran did for him. Of course, all leads back to him literally walking in his father's footsteps in the halls of the hotel that obliterated his family. What does the title Dr. Sleep mean? The title Dr. Sleep is, is really kind of beautiful, actually, in its meaning. Dan has settled in New Hampshire, and he works as an orderly in a hospice and realizes very early on that while he doesn't use his shining abilities anymore, that he's successfully kind of really tucked them out of sight and, and out of his life, he can use them to help bring comfort to people who are dying in the last moments of their life. And because of that, he develops a reputation among the patients um, as being this kind of wonderful presence that will appear at their bedside in their final moments in order to help them go off to sleep peacefully. Um, and that earns him the nickname Dr. Sleep. What's your relationship with Stephen King's work in general, King's novel The Shining, and Stanley Kubrick's film version of The Shining? I discovered Stephen King very young, probably younger than, uh, than I should have been. And I started with It. It was the first book that I read, and I was in fifth grade, completely traumatized me. I was hooked, though. I was, I was hooked on the world building that he did, on his attention to characters. My first experience with The Shining was seeing the Kubrick film at a sleepover when, again, I was way, I was way too young to see it. And it really, really terrified me. I didn't read the book until I was in high school. And I was immediately struck by how different they were. The Kubrick film was such a formative experience for me as a young horror fan. I mean, there, there are images and moments in that movie that have seared their way into my, into my imagination and into my memory. And I think fans of the film, even people that aren't fans of the film will admit 
that that movie burrows into your brain, that, that there are moments of it once you see, you will not forget for the rest of your natural life. It's, it's, it's one of the, the few horror movies that has that immediate power over its viewers. The language that Kubrick used visually became the language in which I knew that story. Um, Jack Torrance, for me, was Jack Nicholson. Wendy Torrance was Shelley Duvall. The Overlook Hotel itself, just as a, as a space, as, a, as an environment, was defined by Kubrick in such a visceral way for me that it was impossible for me to read King's novel without picturing Kubrick's imagery, without picturing those actors. It was that kind of arresting. But I was shocked at how different the content of the book was from the film. The intentions of the book, in particular, how it treated Jack Torrance, what the arc of that character was. There, there was such a gulf between the source material and the adaptation, and I loved them both for very different reasons. Um, and it was, it was tough to reconcile them at times. I remember being very excited and trepidatious when they announced Mick Garris's miniseries of The Shining, because the King fan in me said, oh my God, I can't wait to see a more faithful adaptation uh, of this book. But the cinephile in me said, you can't do that. You know, why, why would you, how can you make another version of The Shining? Kubrick did it. It's, it's already done. So it, it, there's always been this very kind of schizophrenic tug of war internally as a fan between King's Shining and Kubrick's. And when King announced that he was going to be releasing the novel Dr. Sleep and that he had returned to those characters, my biggest question, just as, as a spectating fan, was how? Like, how is he going to do it? His opinion about Kubrick's film is famous. His disdain for that adaptation is, is not something that he hides. And so the first chapter of Dr. Sleep was where all of my attention was as a fan. Is what is he going to do? How is he going to reconcile these huge differences? You know, that, that in his novel... The Overlook burns down, but in Kubrick's film, it is left standing. In his novel, Dick Halloran survives and escapes with, with Wendy and Danny. But in Kubrick's film, Dick Halloran is dead in, in the lobby with an axe in his chest. These are not minor story points to have to reconcile. They're pretty huge. How was King going to pull it off? And I thought that the novel immediately grabbed me because he, he took care to go all the way back to where the original novel left off, to, to be there with young Danny and, and with Wendy and with Dick Halloran to very defiantly in the first chapters say, I am completely obliterating every choice that Kubrick made in this adaptation. I am replanting my flag as the creator and the author of this story and just insisting for anyone who had any questions, nope, this is what really happened. This is the, the canon for the Overlook and for the Torrance family saga. It was intense. And the feelings I had were very conflicted. I loved the book, Dr. Sleep. I loved the work that he did with Danny Torrance. I loved seeing an author who had written a book that I, I believed was an incredibly self-conscious examination of addiction. Um, and now decades later, reapproaching that same world through the lens of recovery and with decades of sobriety under his belt, at a time when his own children, who were about Danny Torrance's age when he wrote The Shining, had now grown. I thought that was just a fascinating and wonderful thing. But the filmmaker in me who 
so admired what Stanley Kubrick had done with his adaptation of that story was a little crushed because it had just been so jettisoned. And it was, it was difficult for me to read the story with all of that visual language that Kubrick had burned into my brain being actively pushed aside. And, and th that was a, a really strange experience. I remember thinking that if anyone was crazy enough to try to make that movie, they'd have a really hard time doing it. And I never in a million years dreamed that would fall to me. I do recall talking to friends after I finished the book and just saying, if they try to make a movie, they're really fucked. And yet here you are. Well, you came up with the unique solution, which was basically to graft the end of the book, The Shining, onto Dr. Sleep and to give Danny the kind of redemption that Jack actually had in the novel. That was kind of the payoff, I thought. And, and that was ultimately what I think convinced Stephen King to let us proceed with this version of the movie, because his initial reaction when I said I wanted to keep the Overlook alive. And I wanted not only that, but I wanted it to be Kubrick's Overlook. I wanted it to be the Overlook that has existed in my imagination since I was a, a kid. I knew that he was not necessarily going to be a fan of that choice. And my producer, Trevor Macy, and I had agreed that if King didn't want us to do that, we wouldn't do the film. He's a hero of mine. And one of the reasons that I work in this industry at all, I didn't want to disrespect his intentions as the author. But I really believed there was a way to try to reconcile these two disparate kind of visions of The Shining. There was some kind of way to parent trap them together <laughs> and satisfy both of those things. And the proposal that I thought might resonate with him was, what if we brought back everything that fans of Kubrick's film would want to see? What if we, we staged that third act in the Overlook itself, which to me, reading the book was something I was hungry for. I mean, the, he even went as far as to have that final confrontation take place on a picnic ground that used to be the Overlook. It was something I was just aching for reading the book. It's like, I just, I want to be inside. I want to, I want to go in. I want to, I want to have this final confrontation take place in the Colorado lounge. How cool would that be? I, I was just really hungry for that as a fan but I knew he'd have very strong opinions about it. And so the thing that I hoped would make that better was that one of his, his chief complaints about the Kubrick adaptation was what it took away from Jack Torrance's final moments in the Overlook Hotel and, and how it took an arc that King had infused with a lot of redemption and sacrifice and completely blown it out of the water in, in favor of something that was much more maniacal, um, much more disturbing in that Jack Torrance just completely gave himself over to the influence of the hotel and would have absolutely stopped at nothing to slaughter his wife and, and son had he not frozen to death in the process. King, who clearly, I think, whether consciously or not, was using Jack Torrance as an avatar for his own anxiety about what his alcoholism could do to his family if it was left unchecked. That need for redemption, that need for a feeling that he could save them from himself, that he could take some kind of step to make it better, to recover, essentially, that was taken away from him. And, and I think that's, that's a personal injury for him as an author. I think that's why his reaction to that adaptation is so 
intense compared to a lot of his others. His other adaptations, I think, that he wasn't happy with, but he didn't vocalize that displeasure with the same venom that, that he applies to, to the Kubrick film. And I think it's because there's so much of Stephen King in Jack Torrance in the book. I thought this was a wonderful opportunity to give him back the ending that Kubrick had denied him, while hopefully still honoring, celebrating, and satisfying Kubrick's adaptation for the masterpiece that it was. And that was the trade-off. I'm going to use the language that I know and that I love about The Shining. I'm going to use Kubrick's language, um, but I'm going to use that voice to tell the ending that King always intended for Jack. It's just going to belong to Danny. And it felt like there must be a way to, to pull that off. He wasn't in favor of having Dr. Sleep exist in that Kubrickian cinematic world until I pitched him the conversation in the Gold Room bar uh, between Jack and, and Danny. I walked him through what I thought it was if he, if he would just imagine Dan walking into the hotel, walking through all these beautifully familiar, iconic spaces and, and finding his way to the gold room where at the very familiar bar, there was a glass waiting for him. I thought that would hopefully do it. And, and King listened to it. He, he thought it over. And by the time we talked about the fact that the bartender would be Jack Torrance, that he would have been absorbed by the hotel, much like Delbert Grady was as staff, as the help and that he would just be there to, to pour a drink and say, good evening, Mr. Torrance. And Danny and Jack could have a conversation about alcohol. That did the trick. That was the scene that, that made him say, okay, give it a try. See what you can do. And I was petrified turning in the script when, when I finally got to the end. And uh, I sent it to King, and he had gotten back in touch with me when he was about halfway through he said, I'm halfway through the script and I love it so far. I've got to put it down for a little bit because there was a wedding in his family. He's like, I'm going to go do that, but I'll, come, I'll pick it up next week. And my stomach just fell out from under me. I said, everything you're going to hate is in the back half. Um, so uh, that, that was another week of no sleep for me. That was always the hope was that somehow this movie could straddle that line and try to celebrate not only... Kubrick's incredible film, but the intentions that Stephen King, the author, had for The Shining that he felt so strongly about over the years. That's why he wrote and produced the, the Mick Garris miniseries. You know, this, this is a story that means a lot to him. He didn't do The Shining for the money. You know, uh, The Shining is a deeply personal story for him. And I think it stayed with him so long that he was compelled to write a sequel to it. That long after the fact just speaks to how personal it is. It's always been my favorite of his books for all kinds of reasons, personal reasons. Tell me about the scene where Danny walks into the Colorado lounge and his father is his bartender. It's really about the cycle of alcoholism and trying to break that cycle. That's a very personal connection I have to it as well. And uh, that was true of uh, Ewan McGregor, who, uh, when he approached the, the part, he was eight years sober. I'm three years sober now. The cycle of addiction and recovery and alcoholism, really, if you take The Shining and Dr. Sleep together, that's the story that's being told. And that's where Dr. Sleep doesn't feel like a sequel to me. It, it feels like the conclusion of one long conversation. And it feels like... This is a story that's a meditation by a man 
who knows what it is like, both in the grips of alcoholism and safely on the other side of recovery, or as safely as one can be on the other side of recovery. That's what I find so fascinating, is, is that The Shining and Dr. Sleep are, are both sides to the same coin. The Shining is cold and frozen and, and snowbound, and, and Dr. Sleep is warm and then ultimately fiery. The Shining is about addiction, and Dr. Sleep is about recovery, and that it's all run through these two men whose influence on each other defines their entire lives and their deaths that Danny's impact on Jack is what leads him to his fate at the end of The Shining. And Jack's influence on Danny, even so much as Danny wants to avoid becoming his father, he, he still lives right inside of him. And it's so clear those moments when, when he is Jack and he is Jack's son, loving and missing his father but acknowledging the trauma that his father inflicted on the family and recognizing that he's capable of inflicting that same trauma on his own life. You know, that's the, the beautiful story that enfolds the Torrance family. That it also has to do with ghosts and psychics and these supernatural beings, whether they're Mrs. Massey at the Overlook or Rose the Hat, who feed upon the spirits of ordinary people and extraordinary people in this world. You know, that's the story that King is telling. That's what I think separates Dr. Sleep from a lot of the other sequels, is, is that it really is just the second kind of side of a coin. It's, it's the, the completion of one long meditative story that has a central theme and a moment of revelation to it. I see them both very much as bookends in Stephen King's life, between which he lived a full and complicated and amazing lifetime. That both get to exist on film, I think, is a beautiful and rare thing. And that both exist on film utilizing similar cinematic language is the real treat of it for me just as a fan of horror movies. How did you approach the film visually? Kubrick's films 2001, Clockwork Orange, and The Shining are very cold movies, but you went in a different direction. The Shining is, I think, profoundly claustrophobic. There's something about the way Kubrick lensed his Overlook Hotel that made it feel like it was huge and imposing and closing in on the viewer as the story went along. Now, a lot of that comes from, I think, the beautiful way that King constructed the novel in that he takes the Torrance family, installs them into the Overlook, and then offers no relief to the reader. There's no real chance to break out of there. There, there are some occasional detours where they'll catch up with Dick Halloran, and that'll give you a, a look outside of the hotel. But predominantly, you're in there. And that space kind of becoming malignant and encroaching upon the characters is one of the things 
that drives Jack Torrance over the edge. And Kubrick, I think, captured that feeling masterfully, that feeling of being isolated, even with people that you love, how that confinement can affect the human psyche. And that, I think that's something we've all been dealing with. We've all been living in our own little overlooks for the last year and a half, just dealing with COVID. The way a space can close in on you is, is a profound thing. When King sat down to write Dr. Sleep, he went completely in the other direction with it. It is a sprawling, huge canvas that he tells that story on. Um, it takes place all over the country. The villains in The Shining, the ghosts are confined to the hotel and, and even the protagonists are confined to the hotel. If, if they die there, they'll be trapped there forever. The antagonists in Dr. Sleep are mobile. Part of their whole thing is that they don't sit still long enough to have their, their lifestyle be in, in any threat. They're always on the move. Meanwhile, you have Abra, who's living in suburban New Hampshire, and you have Dan, who is also nomadic, who has never been able, since escaping the Overlook, has never been able to settle down. That feeling of confinement and claustrophobia that the Overlook Hotel burned into him as a child has made him a wanderer as an adult. This is a man who can't sit still very long for fear that sitting still will let whatever space he's in collapse on him, much like the Overlook did. So already, Dr. Sleep is off to a completely different kind of start than The Shining. It's already dealing with characters who are so separated spatially by such distance that half the fun of the story, as King wrote it, is watching them all finally collide together, which takes most of the book before you actually get Dan Torrance, Abra Stone, and Rose the Hat in the same place. It doesn't really happen till the end. I really think that's a smart way to approach a sequel because one of the dangers of any sequel is regurgitation. It's, it's just repeating what you think worked about the original property. And I think that King actively, in so many instances, decided to approach it in the exact opposite direction uh, from his original story. I, I think that is the kind of challenge to an author that will lead to a sequel that starts to feel like it functions very much as its own story, that it's additive to the original, but not simply a copy of it. It works very well for the generational themes of this as well, in that Dan Torrance has elements of Jack Torrance in him, but is very much his own man and is actively doing everything he can to avoid being his father, to avoid walking in his footsteps. Dr. Sleep, the film, is doing the same thing with The Shining. The Shining is dad. We wouldn't be here. We're, we're of dad. We're, we're a product of dad. The DNA of dad cannot be taken away from us. However, there's, there was a sense with all of us going into it that much like Dan and Jack and much like King's two books, we had to actively avoid making the same decisions, that we had to honor it. We had to acknowledge the DNA that was inextricable from the story, but that we also had to very intentionally carve our own way. It meant that we would quote Kubrick's aesthetic where appropriate. It meant that we would quote the way that he would approach shooting certain sets, his symmetry and his coldness, his incredible framing, but that we would also be very careful to make sure that we had our own identity visually, that this was Dan's movie, not 
Jack's and, and certainly not Kubrick's. Michael Fiminari and I, very early on, had a conversation where we acknowledged the temptation was going to be great just to try to quote Kubrick as often as we could and that we would upset someone no matter what we did. The Kubrick diehards would be mad. The King diehards would be mad. There was no way to really please everyone. So we had to push thoughts of pleasing everyone as far away from us as we could and make sure that we never forgot this was our movie. It needed to be a Mike Flanagan film. It needed to be a Michael Fiminari film. It needed to be an Intrepid Pictures film. It, it couldn't just be The Shining 2. King also gave us the gift of not calling it The Shining 2 or The Shining Coda or, you know, The Shining 40 years later. You know, it, it, he chose a title that was not only whiplash for people expecting The Shining 2. He chose a title that could only be appreciated and understood if you viewed the title through the story arc of Dan Torrance. And the title has nothing to do with The Overlook. The title has nothing to do with the events of his childhood. It has nothing to do with Jack Torrance. You know, the title that King chose is all Danny. That really showed us the way, I think. We're looking at a number of films featuring psychics this season, and I'm interested in how different directors visualize psychic phenomena. You have some pretty striking scenes, particularly when Rose the Hat does her astral projection. How, how did you conceptualize that? One of the biggest challenges, not only to Stephen King adaptations, but to the genre in general, is how to visually represent concepts that are inherently internal and entirely psychological, like psychic ability, like the shining itself, like uh, telekinesis or astral projection. These kind of things are really tricky because more than any other genre, horror is going to have budget limitations for the most part. You're going to always be trying to do something in camera. You're always going to be trying to do something with limited resources. And when you get into these internal psychic set pieces, they can go silly so fast. Before you've, you've even kind of realized what's happened, they can have gone wrong. It's some of the most challenging stuff to approach. And what Stephen King is pretty amazing at doing is to take very complicated concepts and start to ground them in ways that are imaginative and completely bizarre, but have some kind of element that you find very familiar. So if he wants to talk about someone locking themselves up in their mind and protecting their memories or accessing their memories, he picks a room and he puts them in there. He, he did this in Dreamcatcher in a very big way with uh, Jonesy's memory warehouse. And this is a, a, a construct he makes in his mind where he's uh, got all his memories there in files, in file cabinets. And uh, Mr. Gray, the alien, is trying to get in. That is a brilliant piece of writing because it takes something that if you want to film this process if, uh, from an objective point of view, you've got an actor sitting there kind of catatonic with a bit of drool coming off his chin, just going like, I'm, I'm saving my memories from the alien. You know, it all is happening in his head. But this gave it a very grounded way to take something we all can relate to, kind of the easiest, most simple version of filing memories away in literal file cabinet, the simplest possible visual representation of this, and then setting it in a way that makes it feel expansive. King liked this so much 
that he basically did exactly the same thing in Dr. Sleep with Abra's memory files in her room. There are a number of these traveling sequences in the book. And Rose the Hat says, turn world. He even makes a point to say, it's not that she takes off flying like Superman out over the world when she actually projects. Rose being Rose demands that the world turn to her. She isn't moving. Now that's very effective when typed out in prose. And it activates your imagination and and kind of forces you to imagine what that must be like. How to put that on a screen is a whole different challenge. These are the first sequences that I storyboarded. These were the first things that we dug into because they can go wrong so quickly. We knew we were going to be rebuilding the Overlook. We knew we were going to have all that stuff. But that's like Act 3 stuff. And if we've lost the audience before we get there, they're gone forever. So way more critical to my movie was Dan and Abra and Rose and how do we show this battle, this escalating battle between psychics who are taking shots at each other, like face shots and body shots from across the country all through the first two acts. You know, for two hours, two and a half hours of this movie, all of the confrontation between the protagonist and the antagonist is in their heads as they kind of stretch out in these astral planes and just kind of punch each other and then run back to their run back to their corners. I love it in the book. It's so compelling in the book, but how to do it visually is really tricky. Our approach to it was, let's find the most relatable and grounded way to do this we can, grab a kernel of it, and then build out from there. And if the idea that struck me the most reading it was that Rose was not moving when she projected herself astrally, that the world moved around her, That made three critical decisions for me off the bat. The first is that Rebecca Ferguson would be fixed in the frame and that the frame would be built around her comfort. That meant if she's sitting in a meditative posture, she would always remain upright and vertical, no matter what was happening. So that means if I ground the entire sequence on Rose's perspective, and I imagine that I'm putting a camera over her shoulder and in front of her as whatever incredible three-dimensional experience she's having unfolds, It'll feel great as long as I orient the viewer and the camera to Rose, always. Which means instead of grounding the camera on the Earth and seeing Rose soar overhead at an incredible speed, I'd much rather ground the camera on Rose, fix her in the center of the frame, lock into that moment because she's going to be controlled. It's not going to be handheld. It's not going to be a violent or out-of-control frame. Rose is always in control. So Rose is going to be centered, Rose is going to be calm, and the rest of the frame, all the rest of the movement, will happen by those rules. If she's traveling 1,500 miles, then what would it look like if I could just sit back, reach up, and roll the earth in front of me 1,500 miles from a great altitude? What would that look like? And I would do weird things, like I would fly back and forth to set, and I'd be traveling a lot, and I'd be traveling at night, and I'd look down out of the airplane window at the ground, and try to contort my face and press it against the window of the plane so I could try to look as close to straight down as I could. Because I feel like Rose taking the path of least resistance would have done it in a way that she found relaxing. And it's cool to look down at the world from that height and see all that sodium vapor light of the city and the suburbs and, and see the skyscrapers and the moonlight reflecting off the water and you know all those beautiful things that really are just about what it would look like to travel that way. That became the touchstone for us. Based on who these characters are, how would they fly? Like, 
Rose is first class. Rose is relaxed. Everything comes to her. You know, when Dan tries it in the movie, it's way less elegant. And that was one where it's like, this is completely out of control. Dan's not flying over the earth. He's in a boat and he can't see the horizon and it's just tossing him left and right. He doesn't know how to do this. And so for Dan's, rather than fix him in the center and let the the world move around this controlled frame, it was about changing the frame and letting him be thrown around within it. We did it the lowest tech way you possibly can. There's a scene toward the end when he's sitting in front of his bed and, and the room seems to tilt to kind of like a dump truck, kind of dumping him up and kind of unceremoniously dumping him face first into the wall. And that's how he travels. That's his astral projection. It's very, it's, 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 he just gets dumped. We did that by tying a rope to Ewan and rolling the camera. Like, I mean, it's original Star Trek technology. We just tilted the camera while we yanked uh, Ewan on a rope and pulled him right into the wall. Oh, and we had a light outside the window that we had on a cue that it would roll by so that it would change the perspective of the light and shadows in the room and make us feel like the room was really moving. It was the lowest, cheapest kind of way to do it. And I remember Ewan coming on to set and being like, this is how we're going to do this. And it's like, yeah, we're going real old school. (laughs) We're going really, really old school with this, but I think it's going to work great because of how rough around the edges it was. Finding ways to sell a big idea in a very simple way. For, for Abra, she is this strange kind of combination. She doesn't have the control that Rose has. She, you know, Abra's not relaxed while she's traveling, but she's so much more powerful than Dan. Dan, the, the room starts to turn and he's, oh God, oh God. He's reacting to it as though it's completely out of his control. Everything Abra does, she controls it, even if she doesn't know what she's doing. So... For that, it really was just imagine if you could lift your room up over your head. Uh, Imagine if you had the upper body strength that if you grabbed onto a window frame, you could just lift it up and roll the whole space around you. It was a weird little mix of the control of Rose with the kind of haphazard dump truck uh, version that, that Dan was. And Abra, I found, was so strong that... It was really exciting to just to just use basic, really rudimentary in-camera cuts to sell her traveling. That if we see her drop, just cut to her feet, you know, landing on another floor. And I don't need the big orbital view of the Earth. Abra just goes right where she's going. She's matter of fact. I don't envy any filmmaker having to find a way to visualize what's occurring in someone else's imagination. It's really, really tough. And and the only thing that's helped me out is to consistently try to find a way to do it that you can relate to something that's really grounded and earthbound. You know, that, that Rose's astral projection only works if I can marry this idea of a controlled vertical meditation with a cross-country flight at night. And if I can just stuff those together, maybe it'll be relatable enough that it won't feel like an X-Men movie. But I don't envy anybody that. It's really hard to do. And I think with Stephen King in particular, and a lot of the, when you talk about psychic horror movies, a lot of them are going to come from Stephen King, who's created, you know, his whole career off of Carrie White and, you know, Firestarter and The Shining. It's like, you know, psychic phenomena and Stephen King are really intrinsically linked. And he wouldn't have a career, I don't think, if he hadn't 
come out just guns blazing on that theme early on. It's really difficult to take something that works on the page and, and that is so esoteric and so hard to relate to and translate it visually. I've found the only way to do it is to try to hang it on something that a lot of us can relate to. And I think King does the same, but it, it's not easy and I don't envy anybody having to go through it. Some of the greatest filmmakers in the world and some of the not so greatest filmmakers in the world have tackled that problem with mixed results, but it's always interesting to see what they try. It's neat too seeing different filmmakers approach this stuff because it's a window into them and how they process these things, how they try to reconcile an idea that's completely metaphysical and completely internal. And I think that's really neat. I think it's really cool to see how different people will approach something. And, and sometimes it works really, really well for one filmmaker one day. And the same filmmaker can take another stab at it in another project. And they're seeing something in their head that isn't translating to the screen as cleanly. And there's no way to know when or why or how that gap is going to you know, exist or, or not. And I, I think it's really very fascinating. And I, I think it's neat as well to see. It's like that there's a subgenre of Stephen King psychic protagonist stories that have been done and redone and redone, like that you can see three versions of Carrie and you can see two versions of The Shining. You're about to see another version of Firestarter. You can see different people's approaches, not only to the same story, but to the same psychic phenomena, and they can be so different. It exposes just how limitless the possibilities are for adaptation, especially when what you're adapting is so esoteric and is so imagined. You're only limited by the imagination of the various filmmakers that you can plug into that equation. I think that's pretty cool. Rose the Hat and the actress who embodies her in the film seems like a yoga mat carrying Santa Monica divorcee. At first, she's in her Stevie Nicks period. Then later on, she's in the yoga pants period. <laughs> Rose the Hat on the page was one of my favorite King antagonists in a while when I read the book. I thought Rose was charming and terrifying and ruthless, but had a code, had a, a purpose you know, she wasn't just evil out there being evil and kind of, you know, twirling her mustache and, and just living to kind of be an antagonist. She was protecting her family. She was finding ways for them to survive. She had a series of rules in a hierarchy and an agenda. She was really just a, a riveting villain, I thought. And you really liked her, but then you watched her do, you know, horrible things. When you get to the part of the book where she kills... Bradley Trevor, the baseball boy. It's, it's an agonizing read. And how a villain can be so monstrous but so charming in a movie hinges 100% on casting. Because you can write the most incredible character in the world. You, you can do everything right there. But unless you find an actor who somehow can get away with doing unspeakably vile things on camera but remain so charming to the audience that even if they hate her, they love to hate her, that, that you can't look away. Rebecca Ferguson showed up and just 
owned Rose the Hat. As King wrote her, Rose is an enigma. She's lived so long that she's actively kind of adopted these different traits along the way. And her style is very quirky and, you know, down to the telltale hat. Rose seems to kind of come from, in one sense, she stepped out of a a circus tent in the 20s. And in another, she feels like a modern woman of the world who's independent and is essentially a CEO of of a really interesting organization. Rebecca really found the rock and roll, I think, of Rose the Hat. And that rock and roll casual coolness is something that permeates a lot of King's stuff, you know? I mean, you see it in Randall Flagg's denim jacket and his little smiley face pin. You know, King has this streak of rock and roll, which is why you see King, you know, now and again when he's not writing his horror movies, he's up playing the guitar on stage with John Cougar Mellencamp. It's like King's a rock and roll guy, and he's a product of the 60s. And so you've got this character in Rose that is just ripe with the possibilities for sex, drugs, rock and roll, infinite charm, the kind of villain you just want to spend time with, even if she's going to be ripping somebody to pieces on screen. But Rebecca also... The thing about Rebecca is she just doesn't give a shit. I mean, Rebecca's just like, and I'm going to do this scene in yoga pants. It's like, oh, great. Um, You know, Rebecca was so into the weirdness of it and and just kind of being like, I feel like this is, I want Rose the Hat to be someone that I bumped into in this bespoke coffee shop in Silver Lake, who I thought was pretty damn cool and, you know, was really into some like ground level independent bands that I'd never heard of, but then goes off at night and tortures, you know, and and murders psychic children for their steam. Rebecca, I don't know what it is about her that is so magnetic, but she's just that way. And she was that way the very first time I met her when when we were we were meeting with a number of actresses to try to find that perfect rose to hat. And I got on a Skype with Rebecca and I knew in 10 seconds. And it it had to do with her confidence, her humor, her charm, with her very, I think, bizarre and endearing sense of humor. And I can't imagine anyone else playing it. It's, It's one of the rare times in my career where casting a role so critical was relatively easy decision. And that certainly doesn't happen often. Rose, to me, represents kind of a return to form for King on the page as far as those kind of villains who are so fascinating, you know, on the level of of a Randall Flagg for me. Just a character that he poured so much fun into that finding an actress capable of having that much fun with the part was a real, real boon for us, I think. Ewan McGregor gives a terrific performance in this. I first saw Ewan McGregor in Shallow Grave. He can play somebody who's wrestling with demons, with addiction, which he did to such effect in Train Spotting, which really, I think, propelled him. But then he's, he's also your leading man. He's Moulin Rouge. He's a, an actor that brings with him an enormous amount of goodwill from the audience that he's built over a career. Ewan is authentic, and he's capable of coming off at once as being perfectly earnest and kind and decent, but also flawed. And he is able to channel that in a pretty profound way. What I loved about Ewan was that you liked him kind of immediately, just just based on what you know of Ewan McGregor. But that underneath it, he was able to channel a lot of darkness that let me know that, yeah, he could have been Jack Torrance's son. 
Um, Ewan himself, you know, had a, a very personal connection to the story in that Dan Torrance, for the majority of, of the book and, and the film, is eight years sober. And when Ewan came in to meet uh, on the part, he was eight years sober. And where I had a lot of conversations with a lot of actors when we were looking for Dan about The Shining. Yeah, I mean, it's unavoidable. And Ewan came in and, and he wanted to talk about The Shining for about a minute. It was important to kind of acknowledge the shadow of the monolith under which we were all standing. And he did that. But kind of as soon as we'd acknowledged that, he said, I know we, there's a lot to talk about with The Shining, but I really want to talk about alcoholism because that is what is speaking to me about this. And I want to talk about recovery. Here's my story. And here's what I connect with with Dan. Be sure to keep The Shining in mind, but I, I really feel like the conversation to have about Dan Torrance is a conversation about sobriety. And that's when I knew he was the right actor for the movie because that was our story. And while The, the Shining and The Overlook and all the rest of it would eventually become important, it was going to happen so late in the game and only as that final conversation about sobriety in relation to dance. So that, that's what made Ewan the right person for this movie. You do a number of things in the film that directly referenced Kubrick's film. Like for instance, tell me about the way you decorated the doctor's office. Dr. John's office in Dr. Sleep is rather shamelessly decorated exactly, or as close as we could make it, to Ullman's office from The Shining. I chalked that up to just being really eager on my part. There's not a huge reason for it in the story. I didn't want to imply that Dan's journey wasn't actually happening or that he was still in the hotel. I thought that there was a parallel between the job interview that Jack Torrance has with Ullman and the job interview that Dan has um, with Dr. John and the differences in the way that they approached it. The confidence of Jack Torrance in that scene set against the timidity of Dan in his. This kind of like devil-may-care arrogance that Jack Torrance had, even hearing that People died here, and he's just, well, oh, okay. No, I've got this. No problem. Set that against Dan, kind of afraid to even to say that he can handle the, the small job that he's, that he's asking for, at least at first. I thought that was really lovely. And what I liked about it was that it was our first opportunity to take the same language, but to tell a different story within it. In the very beginning of the movie, we were actively recreating moments from The Shining. We've got, you know, Danny on his big wheel. That was, I mean, we were trying to do exactly that. That was really just saying, we're going to use the same language to tell the same story and just kind of get everybody's orientation back into this world. But this was our first real chance to take the cinematic language of Kubrick and tell a very different story inside the room. To take something very familiar, in that case, that specific office, and to affect a scene within it that went completely in a different direction than the corresponding scene in The Shining did. It was important to me that we do that at least once relatively early in the film. That was going to be our strategy when we got back to the Overlook at the end, but I didn't want that to be the first time it happened. So this was a bit of a stretch. It helps, though, in letting the viewer know that there is symmetry in this world, that it doesn't necessarily mean literal symmetry, that he isn't sitting in the same room 
that his father was at the Overlook, but that there is this inexplicable symmetry within our lives, that the moment that his father had with Ullman and the moment that Dan has with Dr. John are incredibly symmetrical, that they're very, very much the same moment. What makes them different men is how differently they responded sitting in that chair. We took that to an extreme by making that environment as identical as we could. But it was really just to, to be the first time to introduce that concept and to make that bed so that when we finally got into the third act at the Overlook and we were doing that in every single scene we could, that it didn't feel unearned, that it didn't feel like it had come out of nowhere. And I think all of us working on the movie were such shining fans. I mean, just as the paint went up on the wall and we were on the desk moving the American flag, there's a feeling we had working on Dr. Sleep that I wish everybody who loves The Shining could, could feel. And I hope we captured at least a, a little bit of for, for viewers. But walking into that space, walking into Dr. John's office for the first time, or walking through the halls of the Overlook, stepping into the Colorado Lounge, the Gold Room, not doing them green screen, but just building it, obsessing over the tiniest tactile details so you could walk through it and touch everything, pick it up. It was an emotional experience unlike anything else I've ever had in my life and, and likely ever will for the rest of the crew and cast as well who had grown up with that film. It's like walking into your own memory. It's, it's like walking into your own imagination and touching it. It's uncanny. We had built a, an adult-sized big wheel for the cast and crew to ride around the halls on. We couldn't stop. I mean, we, we were kids again. It's like walking through your love of a movie. It's like going inward. It's like astral projection. It was so surreal. The hope was always like, if we can capture the tiniest fraction of this for a viewer, if someone can gasp that way in a movie theater, the first time you go into the Colorado Lounge again in this new, this new story, this new experience, then that's what Dr. Sleep could be. I hope we did it. I hope we captured some of it, but... The experience of being there was, uh, I've, never, I've never had anything like it. I, I doubt I ever will again. I always tell people to watch the director's cut of Dr. Sleep. To me, it looked like a lot of Ewan McGregor's best work was in there. Yes, yeah. We always knew Dr. Sleep wasn't going to be a short movie. It's not a short book. It was not a short script. And I think because of the success of it, we were given more rope. By the studio. I, I think because it, which had a substantial runtime, just exploded with success. I think under any other circumstances, if I turned in a 150-page script for Dr. Sleep, a studio would have said, no, you're going to have to cut quite a bit out of this. That didn't happen for us. And there was always a sense while we were shooting, this was, this was an epic story. But I went through that script again and again and again, and it was my favorite version of the story. And I kept saying, I, I, I don't want to cut anything. It was clear when we finished it that they were not going to be comfortable releasing a movie longer than two and a half hours. And I got that. That wasn't controversial to me. I, I was grateful and impressed that they made it up to two and a half, to be honest. So there was always this expectation that there was a target the movie had to kind of fit into. But... Very early on in post-production, Warner Brothers had said they were open to releasing a director's cut and encouraged me to save everything as we were trying to hone that theatrical cut. And that was 
huge. Um, I'd, I'd never been offered that opportunity before. And I would say, well, I've got big, I have special effects sequences. I've got huge and complicated visual effects in the overlook itself that would be removed for the theatrical cut. Are you saying you'll, you'll pay to finish all of that? And the answer was not only yes, but that we would work on the cuts concurrently that we wouldn't really miss a beat with that. I think that was because the expectation within the studio was that the movie was going to be very, very popular and, and very successful, that it was going to ride that wave of it. It didn't do that. And the confidence with which the studio approached it by saying, yeah, we can have a three-hour cut, and yeah, we'll put it right out on, on home media and streaming as soon as it's ready, and we'll finish all of it. It won't be temp effects, and it won't be temp score. We'll, we'll really finish that movie. That was awesome. Whenever I had to remove something for, for the runtime of the theatrical, it didn't hurt the way it typically does because I knew it still existed in the director's cut. And, um, and I was growing and, and finishing that cut at the same time. So it made it easier to cut the film down. I, I think what it cost the movie uh, and why I prefer the director's cut so much more to the theatrical is uh, character development. There was plenty left by the time, you know, the theatrical cut was finished. But Ewan McGregor's work as Dan, the, the specific notes of his journey, not only to rock bottom, but back up into sobriety, was much more realized, I think, in, in the original cut. I, I think Abra's development of her powers was, was more rounded, you, spending more time with her very young, seeing how her parents reacted to it. All that stuff enhanced it enormously for me. More time with the true knot, seeing more scenes between Rose and Crow and seeing how that dynamic worked. It, it also cleaned up some plot logic issues. We had scenes that explained how Rose knew to travel to Abra's house. All of that was from the book. The biggest thing, though, that separates the theatrical cut from the director's cut for me is that we were able to break the director's cut into chapters like a book. Each is about half an hour long, give or take. They are chapter titles from King's books, uh, from The Shining and from Dr. Sleep that, that make those up. That approximated the feeling I had as a constant reader when I read the book. He's lovely at hinting at what's to come in a chapter by titling it very shrewdly and having this very satisfying experience of reading a chapter and feeling that penny drop and understanding why those words were chosen to frame it. Um, so we got to do a, a very little version of that in, in the director's cut. I prefer it myself a great deal. I, I love seeing more of Alex Esso as Wendy Torrance. And I loved seeing uh, one of my favorite little moments of the film was actually a, a long way to go to answer a, a casting problem of little Danny Torrance's eyes are a different color than Ewan McGregor's eyes and a different color than Danny Lloyd's eyes in the original. And we had to just come up with a practical solution to that, which in the theatrical cut was just that we would, we would recolor, digitally we'd recolor little Roger's eyes. And these are the things, you know, that shouldn't matter, but fans will pick them apart. The Reddit thread of bad eye color was, was going to be something I'd never be able to look away from. So we had come up with this really, I thought, kind of touching example of little Danny using his shining to change the color of his eyes so that his eyes didn't remind Wendy of Jack. 
And that was something that felt completely in keeping with the themes of domestic trauma and abuse and recovery that permeate Dr. Sleep, the novel. And it was, it was something I really liked. And so that's restored in the director's cut. Little, little moments where you see how these characters play off of each other that only enhance Dan's eventual kind of confession about how he felt when Wendy died. And the final moment that you see of them is her looking directly into his eyes. You know, it, it all was designed to, to enhance itself. And, and so even taking away little things to make a runtime work better for exhibition, it can dull the impact of, of a big emotional moment by five, 10%, just taking something out. And that accumulates over time. It can dull the impact of the whole film. And you get this weird contradiction where I believed a viewer would enjoy sitting with this movie for three hours more. They would get more out of it if they sat for longer than they would in two and a half. I think that's the effect. I always tell people it's the rare movie that's better at three hours than two and a half hours. I can't thank you enough for that. So that's, uh, thank you for that. How did you use the soundscape to connect Dr. Sleep back to The Shining? The soundscape of Kubrick's The Shining is one of the most effective I've ever seen, ever. What people consider kind of the theme of The Shining, Berlioz at the beginning, is this Gregorian chant from the, I think, 1300s. You layer that in with this kind of atonal soundscape that then begins to beat like a heart and kind of mimics the sensation of being trapped in your own body, listening to your own heart rate increase as the tension kicks in. It's masterful. The Shining is able to make you squirm in your chair when nothing overtly frightening is happening on screen at all. You just have you know Jack and Danny sit and have a conversation in the Torrance residence. The music that oppressive, effective soundscape has you convinced it's about to just any second now, it's going to explode into horror and violence. And you feel that way without relief the entire runtime of the film. Abruptly cutting to the title cards with this just aggressive, kind of brutal sound design that'll, that'll accompany them. Boom! It is... The movie abuses you sonically. And it's remarkable. So the fact that we're using Kubrick's visual language and his production design and the overlook that, that he designed, I thought meant we had to also celebrate the language of the sound design of The Shining. Now, I, I've used the same composers my entire career, the Newton brothers. And uh, when I met with them the first time to talk about this project, they were as appropriately intimidated by it as I was. But they were so excited. And the idea that we would be kind of actively avoiding anything that felt like the current expected musical strategy within the genre, the, the, the kind of music you hear in, um, and I'm not picking on these movies because they're great, but like 
your your conjuring scores, your new line cinema scores, your horror movie scores. We didn't want to do that. There's a hypnotic, disturbing quality to The Shining that we wanted to harness and do our own riff on. And it's that same idea that we had about how to approach the visuals was to take the same ingredients and repurpose them to try to do different and and distinct things with them while evoking the memory of that. And I do remember the first time I put together an edit that utilized that heartbeat and that kind of almost tribal vocalization. And it was under, uh, I'd put it under that first scene of Danny and Dick Halloran on the bench. And it was transforming. It changed the whole spirit of the movie. And it let us do a number of other fun things with those ingredients. It let us have our own distinct Abra sound and our own distinct True Knot language. And it, it really gave us all of that. But I always knew that there was a moment when we were going to be driving up the mountain and when we were going to be getting back into that familiar aerial footage and that that would mean we'd need to just hit those notes. We'd need to bring that Berlioz in and really do it. And I remember the first test screening I sat in when they're at the gas station and the long dissolve starts to that little island in the canyon and that music came up, uh, the audience lost their minds. And, and it's... It really speaks to something that Kubrick knew better than any other of his contemporaries about the importance of sound design in horror and about how quickly you can build a nightmare around a viewer just by bathing them in the right music and in the right design, by weaponizing familiar sounds, by refusing to give them the comfort of a predictable melody. That, I think, is, is masterful. And I think he changed horror cinema, maybe forever, by demonstrating it to that effect in The Shining. So many movies, you see, we see us reaching for it. And so many times, we're kind of made to fall back on, on the thing where we know if we just do a really loud, if the orchestral conductor sneezes, and you get a really loud, every instrument just kind of vomits at the same instant that you'll make someone startle and they'll toss their popcorn and they'll laugh in a studio will say, you did it. Um, but it's like, you, you don't know, you just released all the tension. You just took everything that was building and you got rid of it. You let all the air out of the room. And Kubrick knew how to keep it as a pressure cooker and he did it, he did it with what you heard. Having seen Doctor Sleep with no music and no sound design and being so bored, I would be fascinated to be able to watch The Shining without all of those elements. Because I really think it's not just an enhancement. Sound design like that, it's most of the movie. That's, that's it's like trying to, trying to say, you know, your, your lungs and your skin are an enhancement to your body. It's, it's, it's that critical. Your relationship with Michael Fimagnari, your director of photography on Dr. Sleep, Haunting of Hill House, and many other projects seems very close. And you work with a lot of the same actors and crew from project to project. 
Does that make it easier to tackle these complex productions? I very much view my crew uh, as a family. A lot of my crew has been with me now from the beginning. When you encounter collaborators, a collaborative art form like film and, and TV, you need other people to pour themselves into it to make it great. You need artists and you need, I think, to build a team of them. And I, I want to do this with crew and with cast. When you find people who make your work better or make their work better um, and who come together to make something that's greater than the sum of its parts, that's what you want. You want to keep those people together. My director of photography, Michael Fiminari, I consider my brother at this point. Michael and I met on Oculus and we've been relatively inseparable ever since. There have been times where we would agree it would make more sense for him to go do another opportunity he couldn't say no to rather than deal with one of my little $2 million horror thrillers at the time. Those are the only circumstances under which we've separated. And we both always at the end of it come back and be like, that was a mistake, we should stay together. And now Michael is an accomplished director in his own right um, and is in this really exciting phase of his career where I get to support him as a producer. I get to watch him direct. And it was a great joy of, of mine to hire Michael to direct episodes of The Midnight Club. I've spent my career sitting beside him at a monitor and he's made me a better filmmaker every day that we've been together. I've learned more about cinema uh, from working with him and with uh, Trevor Macy, who's produced every single thing I've ever done since Oculus. I try to keep people close. I think when you find people who do challenge you to improve and who teach you about the beautiful mosaic that this art form really is, I think the danger comes when you start to believe that any film or TV show can be the product of one person. I think that's when it's dangerous. Even when we talked about The Shining, we talked about Stanley Kubrick, who's as impactful an auteur as you're ever going to find. Even his work isn't going to be what it is without the incredible contributions of so many other artists that all lift him and each other and the project up. And so for me, finding the people that do that and refusing to let them go is one of the, the most rewarding elements of being able to work in this industry. I really want to have people I trust, people who I know will challenge me to do better work, people who I know will take this project that I love and make it so much better because of their contribution to it. Michael Feminari is one of the most critical people in my life for that. I'm only half serious when I say I won't take a selfie without Michael anymore. He's forgotten more than I'll ever know about photography and cinematography. That family in the cast and crew, that's kind of the ball game for me. It doesn't even matter at the end of the day. If we failed shooting episode six of Hill House or when we failed to make Dr. Sleep a box office sensation, that doesn't matter because we did it together and we were true to each other and ourselves. And it takes a lot of the pressures that this industry can put on someone and, and exposes them for the illusions that they are. You'll only ever be successful if you're working on material you love with people who you love and growing together as you do. It's impossible to fail under those circumstances. That's why artists like Michael Fiminari and Trevor Macy and, and Henry Thomas and Alex Esso and Kate Siegel and these actors who 
I've now worked with half a dozen times. These crew members, my, you know, my key grip, uh, who's, who's uh, Eric Damasio, stuck with me for five movies and a TV show. You know, it, you surround yourself with, with the right people, and every day at work is a roaring success, whether the project ultimately is or not. That seems like a good place to wrap it up. Thanks, Mike. Sure, yeah. Um, look, this has been a blast. Thanks so much for having me. And I love the show. It's a beautiful thing and, and a wonderful record of a genre I love. And I think, I think your questions are very well thought out and probing and very interesting and really fun. And I love, I love what you do. So uh, thank you for letting me be a part of it. That was the very gracious and very prolific Mike Flanagan. Join us next time when our guest will be Joe Hill. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Sayenga. Produced by Kurt Sayenga. Engineered by Chris Heckman. With music by Joseph Bashara. For Oddity, Jessica Bastilos and Lacey Oglevoy. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman. The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the third season of the AMC television series Eli Roth's History of Horror. Executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayanga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. Senior producer Ben Raphael Schur. Thanks to Marco Brazes, Kelly Nash, Chris Powers, and Clara Zwerbel at AMC. This is Kurt Sayanga for Eli Roth's History of Horror Uncut. <laughs> <laughs>